A few days ago, I gave a talk to University of Montana students. I was invited to talk about my research, how I became a scientist, the path that I took, and also advice that I uh, could share with the students. And at the end, you always leave room for questions. They asked me a lot of questions about my elephant research. And I think sometimes as a scientist, you're just like so used to your field that you forget what you do is really weird. They had a lot of questions about setting up this research, like how did I even get started studying elephants? So I thought that would be a really fun thing to talk about on the podcast, specifically how I got involved in this research, but then also some stories from the field, what it's like to study forest elephants. So this might end up being a multiple part episode and, and we'll see where it goes. But this is one of my favorite topics, so I I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Let's roll the intro music. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Why elephants? How in the world did I get started with elephants? Well, if you watch my video on my biggest tip, it's one of my most popular videos, you'll know that I went to Kenya for study abroad in 2002 or 2003. I can't remember. Oh my gosh. And when I was in Kenya, I was just totally fascinated by the elephants. And I actually really remember the moment I fell in love with them. Of course, it was really amazing to see them on the open savanna, but it really was when I met this assistant, this research associate of Dr. Cynthia Moss's, that I realized just how amazing elephants were and just how cool the research that they were doing about these elephants was. So Cynthia Moss has been studying African elephants for now 40 years, maybe longer, in Amboseli National Park, Kenya. And this park has a lot of elephants. The elephants are really used to tourists and her research. So you can actually get really close to the elephants. They're, they're very nice and kind elephants. But one day we had a lecture given by this research associate. And she was just telling us how amazing African elephants are. She was just talking about their social structures, which I totally fell in love with. So basically, they're based on these family groups. There are adult females and um, these adult females have young and when the young grow up, the females all stay together. So these family groups are then maternal relatives. So it would be um, like you living with your sisters, mothers, aunts, and grandmothers. And these social systems are really important for their survival. They, the oldest elephant, which is called the uh, matriarch, so the grandmother elephant, she is especially important because the knowledge that they have from her especially, but also the group, helps them survive. 
through finding food and water sources during times of drought and protecting the group from predators, especially young elephants. Hyenas and lions do sometimes kill elephants, adult elephants. And if you've ever seen planet Earth, there is um, one episode where uh, a pretty large pride of lion takes down an adult elephant. It singles it out and and kills it, which makes me sad, but lions have to eat too. But they they do have to protect the baby elephants. And scientists have done studies on this. They have went into the field and they've played the sounds of lions, the roars of lions to groups that have these these matriarch grandmothers with them, these older female members. And they played them back to other groups that didn't. They were they died because of poaching. They were poached out of the group, which means they were illegally killed. And what these scientists found is that the groups that had the the grandmothers, that had the proper group structure, they reacted appropriately, as elephants should, to the lion's roars. So they would they would bunch together and put the young ones in the center and protect them from, from the lions. So these elephants are really, really important for their survival. The group is really important for their survival. And these groups change over time and space. They get really large during the wet season when there's lots of available grasses, and they shrink down to smaller sizes to the basic family group when it is uh, dry season. Elephants are also extremely intelligent. They are among the most intelligent animals on Earth, um, up there with dolphins and apes. They are also thought to have emotions. Some scientists um, say this. They act. They have some really strange behaviors in the field. They will actually help out individuals that are not related to them. So for the animal kingdom, this is actually a really strange behavior. Why elephants? How in the world did I get started with Animals, when they help out other individuals, they're usually helping out their kin, those that they are related to, because they share genes. So there is an incentive for them to, to help out each other because they want to pass on their own genes. That's how evolution works. So they will also help out other individuals who are related to them because then their chances of having those shared genes spread will increase. But there really isn't a lot of explanations for animals helping out unrelated individuals unless it has to do with the acquisition of resources, some way in which which the, the animal themselves benefits. And elephants are strange because There have been cases of elephants seemingly helping out or interested in other individuals who are not related to them at all. So there was this one study where the elephants had collars on them. They had been collared for quite some time, so they had these tracking devices around their necks. And when scientists collared the elephants, they had blood samples of them, so they knew their genetic relatedness. And in one of the groups, one of the females, one of the adult females, she got sick, she fell down, 
And the other individuals in the group tried to help her up, which which makes sense. They're, they're related to each other and they're in the same group. Unfortunately, she eventually passed away and the group, you know, spent time with her, touching her. But the really interesting thing about this, but the really interesting thing about this was but the really interesting thing about this was that elephants from around the area that were completely not related to this individual, they went. They actually went out of their way because they had the tracking devices on the elephants. They went out of their way to visit this individual who had recently passed away. So for elephants to go out of their way to just visit another elephant that passed away, there's no real um, motive for them. Like how would they benefit from this information? It's not... It's not easily explained by science. So just the fact that they have such interesting cooperative behaviors, that they're so smart, this is, this is why I became interested in elephants. And when we were sitting with this researcher in Ambicelli National Park, I remember we were eating our lunch outside and we were with a researcher and she was explaining to us about how they studied the elephants. They drove around the park and when they found elephants, they would identify them. And remember, they had been doing this for decades. So they actually had note cards and these note cards kept track of the different elephants. What they would do is draw ear tears on the note cards, and that was their way of identifying the elephants. So these researchers, they knew every single elephant in the park. And when she was speaking, there was an elephant far in the distance. So when it was time to ask for questions, we asked her, um, could she name that elephant? And she took up her binoculars and she, she took a few few moments and sure enough, sh- she said the name of the elephant. And I just thought that was so cool. Like I just thought it was so cool that you could track the lives of individuals of these extremely smart, extremely social animals. So I took this experience with me for a long time. It has been just a really memorable experience in my life. When I was deciding to go to graduate school and contacting professors for graduate school, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Even though I liked elephants, I don't know, for some reason, I just I just didn't know like what questions to ask. I, I just didn't know what my study would be about. And with charismatic animals like elephants, you also have to be careful because different people have different field sites. So you can't always easily work where other people work. So you just have to kind of be careful. So I was tr- still trying to figure out like what animal I wanted to study, what questions I wanted to ask. The advisor that I chose to work with, she studied genetics. That was that was her whole thing, using non-invasive genetics. So that is DNA from hair, dung. It's, it's mostly hair and dung. Feathers, sorry, feathers are another example to understand ecological questions or questions about wildlife. So when I went to into this lab, I was her first student, and 
essentially I could study whatever I wanted as long as it had an ecological genetics component to it, a non-invasive genetics component to it. And this sounds amazing, and it was amazing. It definitely was a great opportunity. But when you're given like so much um, room to to search, f- you can study anything as long as it involves non-invasive genetics. You know, it's like so many animals in the world that you could study. So I was just, I was very overwhelmed, and I was just like a little, a little lost. So when I was in graduate school deciding what questions I wanted to ask and what species I wanted to study, I did return to forest elephants a lot. So forest elephants, at that time, they were just starting to be designated as a different species from the African savanna elephant. So I had been talking this whole time about the African savanna elephant. The African forest elephant is on the other side of Africa. It lives in, they live in um, West Africa and Central Africa, and um, they're smaller. They were thought to be a subspecies at this time, but there was some genetic evidence coming forth that suggested that they were a different species. And my advisor actually studied forest elephants. She studied them. She estimated their population sizes by collecting dung. So she went on these surveys through the forest, collected dung, and used the dung to amplify sources of DNA to then estimate population sizes using a mark uh, recapture method. But even though I loved elephants um, and I kept on returning to forest elephants. I just I just really didn't know what questions to ask about them. Part of the problem was that there was so little known about forest elephants, which is crazy because elephants are the largest land animal and you think there would be a lot known about them. But in reality, forest elephants are there's so little known about them because they are so hard to study. They um, live in the forest, obviously. Their name is not that creative. And they can hide so easily. And these forests can be really dense. It's actually dangerous to go into these forests because of the elephants, or it can be dangerous depending on the park, because you just can't see that far ahead of you. So to get close enough to study the elephants is extremely difficult because they're skittish of you. And then when you're too close, like I said, it could be dangerous. So there's really only a couple of places, or not not a couple, but there's really only um, certain types of places in Africa where you can study African forest elephants. And those are places that are called bays, or there are some savanna clearings within the zone of forest elephants. So bays are these, these large mineral deposits in forests. Actually, some of them can be pretty small. And they have these these concentrations of salts and other minerals. And animals come to the by to, there's usually water too, to drink the water and to eat the soils. And some buys are really, really huge. There's there's one by in Central African Republic, the, the Zanga by, where Andrea Tocalo has studied elephants there for decades. So she's kind of the Cynthia Moss of forest elephants. She knows a lot about them. She's been studying them. But one of the problems is she hasn't published her research in scientific journals. So I had no access to that information. I couldn't build off of her questions. I couldn't see what she was studying and 
and what were the holes? What could what gaps could I help fill in the research? But I did know she was studying a lot of the intricacies of their social structure because like Cynthia Moss, she was identifying individual elephants and keeping track of who was in the buy, how they interacted, taking a lot of behavioral data. So I kept returning to the scientific literature to determine what should I study about African forest elephants. But so many of the papers were descriptive, meaning they just talked about like what diet the elephants had. Some of them estimated population sizes with dung samples and and not with genetics. But and group sizes was another big one. But there really wasn't that much information about them. So again, it was kind of like overload where I um, overwhelm, overload in terms of underload, in terms of like that there is so much out there unknown, like you kind of don't know what to ask and you don't know what to start with. And science nowadays really veers away from natural history types of studies. So in terms of grant funding, it is really difficult to get funding to just say, I want to study this elephant or this species. You really have to to wrap your projects in a theoretical context. So how I came upon my research questions was through a colleague of my advisor's His uh, name was Stephen Blake, and he worked with the Wildlife Conservation Society in Gabon, and he was leading a study similar to the African savanna elephants where African forest elephants were being collared. So they had these gigantic collars around their neck with transmitters, and these transmitters released signals so you could tell the locations of where they were. And... In his data, so he had at least at least a couple of elephants, I believe, per park, but there were quite a few uh, parks that these elephants were um, tracked in. So I think dozens of parks across Central Africa. And one thing that was really peculiar was this population of forest elephants in Luongo National Park, Gabon. And When you think of elephants, you usually think about them roaming really large distances. I mean, they're a big animal. They're going to need a lot of space. But what he found with Luongo, well, first, let me set up what Luongo is like. It's this it's this park that is really um, thin shaped. It's linear. It's along the coast. Luongo is super cool because you can actually see hippos, quote unquote, surfing in the ocean there. It's a beautiful park. And the and Luongo was next to or the Luongo was adjacent to an area that has it was an oil concession, but this oil concession, which sounds terrible for wildlife, it actually wasn't um, that bad, at least for elephants, because it was protected from poachers. There was only one road going through the concession, and they had security at both ends of the park. So they knew everyone who went in and out of the park. And actually, elephants were really attracted to this area because it was safe from poachers. Next to the oil concession was another national park with the awesome name of Mukulabadudu. <laughs> and 
And Stephen expected the elephants to migrate from Luongo National Park to a national park. But what they found out from this telemetry work is that Luongo elephants, like, didn't really move that much. I mean, of course they moved, but... The home ranges of some of these elephants was really small, like only like five, six kilometers. And these elephants were tracked for two years. So it's not like we just they were just tracked for a month and it was like, okay, maybe, you know, the elephant had really great fruit nearby during that month and didn't need to travel that much. But like I said, they'd been they had been tracking these elephants for two years. So it was it was pretty shocking and surprising that the elephants did not move really that much over the course of these these two years. And that was what really got me interested in African forest elephants. And savanna elephants, like I mentioned, they have these overlapping, um, or they have these fission fusion societies where they change group sizes according to the wet season and the dry season. So essentially, all um, the females in the population, um, at least in Ambicelli, they will associate with one another throughout through, throughout the park. They they eventually get into these groups that are that are quite big. Forest elephants, they're in these really small groups. All of the observational studies show that they were they are just in groups of really single individuals and their dependent calves. My cat is meowing in the background. So that's not even really a group because the calves, they have to follow their mom. They're dependent for a long time until... Well, if actually if they're females, they should stay with their mothers their entire lives, like how the savanna elephants do. But it it was so frequent that the most common group you would see would be just a single elephant. So we I don't we don't know exactly when the females disperse. Males typically disperse between ten to fifteen years of age. So what was going on with the forest elephants? Everyone thought that they had similar social structure as the African forest or the African savanna elephants, and they just lived in the forest. Elephants can also communicate uh, via infrasound, which is low frequency sounds. So these sounds can travel a really long distance. So they can essentially be in a group, but not that close to one another and still communicating to one another. So in the forest, it was totally possible that that the elephants thought they were in some sort of group, even though they were distant from each other physically. And the researchers wouldn't necessarily see them, excuse me, wouldn't necessarily see them together and think that they're part of the same group, especially if they're just looking in by area because it's a it's a limited viewing area. You only can see the open part. You can't see what's beyond in the forest. So I really wanted to investigate this social structure of forest elephants, and this spatial part really excited me. Not only did the Luongo elephants, not only did they have really small home ranges, they also didn't seem to really overlap that much from each other. So this is what formed the start of my dissertation research questions. So with your dissertation, 
you have with a PhD, you have three chapters usually. Some people have more, but you need at least three. And it's essentially three different questions that fall under a similar, a, a similar, a similar larger question. So my larger question would be about understanding African forest elephant sociality, but then I had three different um, subsets to to address this larger topic. So my first chapter was about officially assessing these Luangwa elephant spatial distributions. So I. I got the GPS data from Steve and I evaluated if these elephants were overlapping in space and time. So for when they were overlapping with each other, was it during the same time? So when you look at all the two years of data put together, you you can't make out if they were in the same place at the same time, just because their dots are located near each other They could be several months apart in time. So I was looking at that. And then I really wanted to get blood samples from these elephants. When they were collared, blood samples were taken on filter paper. And they were in Gabon. So we were going to access those blood samples and use them for genetics to see if like savanna elephants the females that are closely that are that are closer together in space are uh, more closely related to each other so that was what my first chapter was about my second chapter was looking at the social structure of forest elephants mostly using observations so the idea was that i would observe groups of forest elephants and then afterward collect dung from them to be able to genetically identify the elephant so so identify the individual by sight by their by their ear tears and then also get a DNA sample. So I could say this DNA sample came from that individual. And then over time, I would build these network models to see who was hanging out with whom, because all of the observation studies that were done before, they just looked at group sizes. So it's possible that like I mentioned before, these group sizes were really small, but if the individuals were changing who they hung out with, this suggests that these group sizes are actually much bigger because their networks are much more expanded. So that was my second question. To get to develop a social network, I think my dog is bothering my cat because he's meowing a lot, to gather, to create a social network of the elephants in the park based on observations and then add genetic information based on their dung samples. That's where the non-invasive dung genetics work comes in. The third question was looking at this from a different angle. So in addition to looking at the observations, we would also look at the spatial genetic patterns on the landscape. So I would go with teams of field assistants and cover as large an area as possible over a sh- as short of a time frame as possible and look for dung that was really close to one another. 
And it sounds gross, but dung decays pretty fast. So you can tell how fresh it is um, somewhat easily. I can get, I'll get into more details about my field work and about how some of the challenges that I had. But if you're in an area and there's, there's a fresh looking dung sample and there's other dung samples around it, it's likely from different individuals and you're getting representations of the groups. And if you place that genetic information across a map, we could see were individuals that ha- that were more closely related to each other, were they actually closer in, in space as well? And that would suggest that like African savanna elephants, their groups are based on these related matrilines. So those um, were the research questions that I decided to study for my PhD. I was so excited about studying them. I got to do some really cool research In the next episode, I am going to talk about what it was like to set up my research. A lot of the students that I talked to at the University of Montana at the talk that I recently gave, they were really interested in how I got this research set up. So I'm going to go into details of setting it up and my field site visits, which have some really great stories. So make sure you tune in. It was not an easy process. It was fun and adventurous, though, and I'm so glad I did it. But yeah, so that's how I decided to study African forest elephants. Before I take off... I just wanted to give you an update. My book will definitely be out on Thursday on uh, Kindle, and it should be out on Thursday on paperback as well. I have to have Amazon approve it before it uh, gets put on their site, but it says up to 72 hours, so I'm gonna do it Monday. I got my proofs, it looks amazing. I am just, I'm so happy about this book, honestly, because it's really gonna help so many of you. I get so many messages from people just totally confused about these this career and they just don't know what to do this book will clear up so many questions for you so it's getting a job in wildlife biology what it's like and what you need to know it includes my personal story and advice for you guys so so check it out you can search it on amazon it's it should it's uh, you can pre-order it now if you're listening to this ahead of thursday and it should be there when you search it. If not, you can head over to fancyscientist.com and find the links there. I also have some products coming out very soon. I created a workbook for helping you figure out what career is best for you and what what you really um, want out of life in terms of your career. So I am finishing up editing it and um, formatting it. And honestly, I expect to have that really soon, maybe even as early as this week. So yeah, I hope you guys have an amazing day. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Be kind to each other and be kind to animals. Bye.